the question is not whether there is intervention or not. The question is how much intervention is there? We're used to trading and profiting from markets where if intervention is kind of plus or minus at the same level that we expect historically. The last five years have been unusually difficult for trading strategies because that level of intervention ratcheted up dramatically. And the closer we are to the extreme where the central banks are being extremely active, the worse it is for us. And the more we go towards parts where it's the normal animal spirits of the, mar of the players in the market that drive the markets, the better it is for us. This is Mark Malik, founder and CEO of Conquest Capital Group, and you are listening to my year-end review on Top Traders Unplugged. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome back, Mark, for this review of 2014, where we look at the big events from the point of view of your trading strategies. I want to explore the ups and the downs, as well as the big takeaway from what can only be described as a great year for systematic trading strategy in general. But as you know, just because you're systematic in your trading, it doesn't necessarily mean that the strategy deals with the market events in a similar way. But I want to jump right into it, really, and, and, and hear from you, sort of your perspective of 2014, both from the various strategies point of view and, and maybe even also as, as a firm. How, do, how did the year evolve for you? Thank you for um, having me again. My uh, pleasure. Pleasure to talk to you and your listeners uh, one more time. Um, the year was overall a very interesting year for us. Um, I would say almost it was for our conquest managed future strategy, our trend follower. It was a bit of a tale of two years, which I think is mirrored in the overall CTA trend following space. Sure. Which is sort of the first half of the year and the second half of the year, where uh, coming into the middle of 2014, trend following strategies were doing pretty badly on the back of still a bad run uh, overall from the last kind of couple of years. Uh, but we saw a big turnaround uh, that sort of really started uh, around kind of the April-May period. And just between May and December, it was one positive month after the other. Uh, our managed future strategy, after being down um, double digits uh, coming into May, into May uh, finished up the year around 16% uh, or so on uh, uh, a fairly sort of uh, lower volatile strategy. Sure. Um, uh, and this is sort of, you know, in line with what we expected to do. Um, and again, uh, following on that theme, sort of uh, what we expected to do. Conquest Macro, uh, our other main strategy, also did what we thought it would do in the sense that uh, the year, uh, while it started off in a very volatile fashion, uh, where Conquest Macro managed to return over 12% in January, wow. uh, 
uh, it uh, ended up after that becoming a fairly risk-seeking low volatility year uh, overall, and we saw a big rally in risk assets. Sure. Now, um, just to remind your listeners, Conquest Micro is a strategy that um, is designed to benefit from high volatility and risk aversion mm-hmm. and try to provide alpha by still being positive in periods where volatility goes down and uh, risk assets rally. Uh, so in terms of the performance of Conquest Micro to its mandate, uh, it ended up the year up around uh, 4% or so, sure. uh, which is which is really positive thing given that equity markets and risk assets had a fairly good year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we were able to add a significant amount of alpha. Uh, now, obviously, uh, from an absolute basis, we prefer it that uh, the markets hadn't done so well and mm-hmm. would done much better, but uh, really not much we can do uh, about that one. Now, um, in terms of uh, our other strategies, um, we had um, a nice spread uh, in the performance, you know, strategies like our Conquest Risk Neutral strategy finished was our top performer, finishing the year uh, up close to 29%. Uh, Conquest Long Risk was up around 16%. Conquest All Weather up around 12%. Um, so overall, I would say it was uh, a pretty good year uh, for uh, our strategies. I would say just one note about the year uh, vis-a-vis a trend following and volatility. A lot of the time, uh, a lot of our investors and investors at large confuse um, trend following strategies with long volatility strategies, right. uh, which is really not the case. And uh, actually, we've written a paper to that effect that um, won the best paper award by an institutional uh, magazine a few years ago and was published in part uh, you know in uh, journal of alternative investment okay but essentially um, trend following strategies are not long volatility strategy they you could argue that they're long the second effect of volatility meaning if the event in the market is sufficiently large from a volatility perspective that it kickstart into place um, new trends, then in that respect they are. And I think uh, 2014 provide a perfect example for that on the upside, meaning we had a year that was fairly benign volatility-wise, but trend-following strategies still ended up doing uh, quite well. Now, typically, uh, you don't get significant periods of trending without some volatility. And generally, it's either volatility that leads to trend or trends that lead to volatility. It seems like um, the reversal of this, you know, past five, six year cycle that, uh, that we've been in is coming as sort of the trend leading to the volatility. We saw the trend begin in the middle of last year and we're seeing volatility pick up um, the beginning of, uh, you know, uh, this year. Uh, so, so far, you know, I'm... Uh, I'm fairly, I'm, I'm happy about what happened in 2014, but I'm much more positive about the prospects for 2015. Sure. Now, maybe to visualize this for the listeners, if you take what happened in oil, where clearly in the latter part of the summer, we, uh, you know, for the first time in, in, in a few years, had a breakout uh, that became a large trend. How... How does volatility actually uh, show itself 
in a market like that? Because I think a lot of people will say, oh, but oil is down 50%. It must have been very volatile. But maybe actually when you look at it from a from from your perspective, actually it was a very nice orderly trend where volatility wasn't really the the issue here. So maybe you can explain some of that. Sure, I mean that's a it's a fairly counterintuitive uh, argument, but a fairly simple one. Meaning, um, if a market uh, goes down uh, or up a percent a day for you know a sixty day period. Uh, you can imagine that that's a big movement over the 60-day period. Sure. But if that change is 1% a day every day, then technically the volatility in that market is zero. Sure. Because when when people look at volatility, they look at return volatility, not price volatility. Uh, so in terms of return volatility, when we look at crude oil, Return volatility was fairly low in crude oil in the sense that the move was very orderly. And when the move is orderly, it's, a, it's not a volatile event. Now, uh, I'm glad you brought that up because in our Conquest Macro program, where we're much more of a short-term trading strategy with an average holding period of about kind of six, seven days, mm-hmm. uh, we don't look at the return volatility because we look at, we look at price volatility. Right. Uh, Precisely take that into account because we think, from a shorter term perspective, that's uh, that's a more reliable measure. But that's uh, it's a very good point uh, you bring up, uh, and oil is the perfect example. Sure. Now you talked a little bit about different strategies um, and in terms of how they uh, performed. If you if we focus on maybe uh, the the two larger ones, the macro and then the managed futures. Um, and we probably have to separate them completely because they are very different in style. Um, what markets really delivered in terms of contribution, both on the positive side and and the negative side, when you look at those two strategies or whatever you have, uh, you know, prepared? Yeah, um, I mean, I sort of tend to uh, look more closely uh, at the macro strategy sure. because. More, uh, it's more an active management one. But uh, our best performance for 2014 in uh, the macro strategy, I would say, were uh, German bonds, uh, okay. the E-mini Nasdaq, and the Euro. Okay. Uh, and the worst performers were uh, Euribor, uh, DAX, and uh, E-mini S&Ps. Um, and uh, you know, it's uh, you mentioned crude oil as uh, being one of uh, the nicely trending markets. And that certainly has been uh, a boon to our trend following strategy to, to Conquest MFS. That's been one of our best markets. But also, um, you know, uh, in a more kind of stealthy way, we've seen a really nice trend that we're able to benefit from um, in, uh, in the dollar, uh, in the euro, in the dollar, some of the currency. Um, that uh, was uh, currencies ended up being a pretty decent uh, performer uh, for uh, 2014. Sure. Now, uh, you know, as as you know, uh, the beginning of this year provided a bit more rock and roll uh, <laughs> in the currency markets, uh, especially with the SMB action. Sure. But um, you know, at least in 2014, it was a fairly uh, good run in the currencies. That- Sure. I, I mean, I think that's a perfect sort of uh, segue seg to, to the next uh, thing I wanted to ask you about, because clearly the 
the year 2014 was um you know uh, determined by a number of big themes you already mentioned oil and obviously ukraine russia which was probably partly uh you know involved in in in, in what happened in the oil markets but then of course the currencies and uh, i don't know whether you trade any of the emerging market currencies which probably had some interesting moves even last year but certainly this year as you rightly pointed out um you know a very developed market currency namely the swiss franc took everyone by surprise so I wanted to ask you a little bit about, in general, how you prepare yourself for extreme volatility uh, uh, in a situation like that. And, and of course, if you can be specific about the Swiss franc and, and how you dealt with it uh, last week, that would, of course, be highly appreciated. Sure. Um, I mean, look, um, to really understand this, um, you can't look at, um, at what's happened as sort of a discrete event. It's really part of a continuum in the sense that um, in the markets that we trade in general, whether it's for the CTA or the macro strategy, sort of uh, we're talking, you know, commodities, uh, fixed income, currencies, equities, and so on. Uh, it's not, the question is not whether there is intervention or not. The question is how much intervention is there? Right. Uh, so starting from things like the currency markets, um, that's the poster child of central bank interventions. I mean, I guess I'm, I'm old enough to remember uh, when the Fed, the ECB, you know, the Bundesbank, uh, you know, we, we used to see direct intervention by central banks buying or selling certain currencies, the yen being a big example with the BOJ. Sure. where literally there'd be either individual central bank intervention or concerted uh, intervention. Uh, we're used to uh, trading and profiting from markets where, uh, you know, if intervention is kind of plus or minus at the same level that we expect historically. Uh, the last five years have been unusually difficult for trading strategies because that level of intervention ratcheted up dramatically. Mm -hmm. Meaning, uh, when you look at sort of what the Fed did with QE, that was very blatant intervention. Um, but is it not intervention also when the Fed is taking interest rates up uh, in, a, in the course of managing interest rates in a normal business cycle, taking them up or taking them down? That's also intervention. Mm -hmm. So. We know how to trade markets when there is intervention. Uh, we just had to adjust to the level of intervention of the last five or six years, because ultimately, I mean, if you again look at it at the extreme, uh, if there is zero intervention, uh, then markets are completely free uh, to trade based on uh, fundamental economic and supply and demand factors. And that would be the best scenario for us. Sure. Uh, we've learned to live with a limited amount of intervention, but take that to the other extreme where if the intervention is to such level where everything is fixed by the central bank, then there really is no job for us trading because mm -hmm. there is nothing to do. Uh, so we know how to trade somewhere along kind of that continuum. And uh, the closer we are to the extreme where the central banks are being extremely active, the worse it is for us. And the more we go towards parts where it's the normal animal spirits of the of the players in the market that drive the markets, the better it is for us. Um, 
that's partly why I'm fairly optimistic about kind of the future from here is that I think um, we we have uh, started a path of, with the exception of what the ECB is doing, and we'll find out tomorrow, but at least I think the BOJ actions are proving to be somewhat unfruitful, and that's kind of waning. We'll see. I mean, my my guess is that the ECB's action will meet, you know, the same fate ultimately. But this is something that, uh, you know, we have to deal with in the markets. Now, when you look at sort of the way the central banks have been dealing with this in general is uh, the goal of one of the goals of the central banks is to limit volatility in the markets. So central banks have been pretty good at telegraphing what is it that they want to do. And it's been almost like a pact between market participants and central banks. Uh, and the Fed has been a leader on that. Okay. That you sort of let us know what you want to do and we'll reduce the volatility in, 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 in what happens in the markets. Because ultimately, for the broader market, volatility is not necessarily a good thing. Now, what was surprising about the Swiss National Bank's action going into the fixing of the Swissy and uh, the freeing of the Swissy is how uh, surprising it was, uh, which uh, really puzzled a lot of market participants as to sort of uh, why would they create so much volatility for no reason. But be that as it may, um, look, the reaction for our strategies was as expected. Uh, our trend-following strategy uh, had... Uh, a, a position that suffered from the, uh, you know, the, the move of the ECB because it's basically trend following and the trend was, this was a counter trend move. Sure. Um, so we lost about three and change percent on the day of the intervention. Sure. Luckily that happened in a month where we were up over five, close to 6% on the month. Sure. So all is well, we're still up, you know, over 3% on the month and we kind of put that behind us. Uh, on the Conquest macro side, where we do welcome volatility in the markets, we finished the day up about 2% or so uh, the day of the SNB intervention. Okay. So business as usual, um, yeah. nothing to report from the front. You know, it was a day and it passed. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, clearly there's been a lot of headlines about uh, what happened and uh, and a lot of people are speculating about, you know, who lost money on it. But, but you know, certainly all the people I've spoken to, and, and I think also if you look at the uh, indices of, uh, of uh, systematic traders, et cetera, et cetera, um, the, the, the daily return looked no different to any other day. Um, and I think that's, you know, a, a, a very positive sign. And look, that's, that's part of the appeal of um, trend-following strategies is that, we're, we're not looking to make any massive bet on any one market. I mean, typically, your typical trend follower is trading 50, 60 markets um, in various strategies and various time frames. So, you know, you could have a bad day in one market and it's not the end of the world. Sure. Um, now, where you will see more uh, blood on the street, so to speak, will be probably more in FX-only strategies, probably more discretionary-type strategies, where there were big bets structured around this. Um, you're going to see some pretty bad secondary effect from uh, from this move. I mean, the, we look at uh, 
the, the next day reaction of what happened, uh, and you know, as you mentioned, you look at you know the, you look at the league tables or whatever, you can get pretty idea what funds are doing. But let's not forget that overnight cost of Swiss products uh, went up about forty percent. Uh, you know, uh, practical things like, you know, people going skiing in Switzerland are canceling vacations because prices went up dramatically. This is going to, this is going to have, uh, much, uh, wider and much longer felt, uh, effects on the country of Switzerland, uh, which again puzzles you on why the SNB would deal with it in this fashion. Um, so, you know, and, and that's not to mention, you know, the secondary effect on some of the um, more sort of Eastern European countries where there was a lot of uh, mortgage financing, where they borrowed in Swiss, in Swiss franc to buy local properties and so on. So what you will see, you know, in in the weeks since the event and 10 days or so is, is the first shock. Uh, but don't be surprised to see the effect of this move linger over the next few months, if not, you know, a year or so. Sure. Speaking about unexpected events, and I know, of course, this is what we preach as an industry to uh, potential investors, that that's exactly what uh, what these strategies are capable of because they're not trying to predict anything. And uh, what happened last week was, you could say, in, an, in one market. So an isolated event, the strategies dealt uh, with that event uh, very well, but and, and of course, that is partly because of the way the portfolios are structured, the risk management, the diversification, and so on and so forth. But if we just allow ourselves to speculate a little bit here, and that is, what if an event like this happened on a much bigger scale? And to give you, to, to, to use an example, um, would be, what if we over a weekend, it was announced that the euro was breaking up? So something that actually would have an impact on many different markets at the same time. How do we, or how do you, view the possibility of dealing with extreme volatility that could occur after such an event? Because right now we only had to deal with one market effectively. Okay, it could be, it was translated into maybe Swiss equities, Swiss bonds, and, and the currency itself. But it was still relatively small uh, part of the portfolio but i'm just thinking right here does 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 something like this give you any reason to go back and think about an issue and say well if if a central bank one week can come out and say this is a cornerstone in our politi- uh, in our uh, politics and the next week make a u turn then we know and we probably knew this already mark that you cannot trust a central banker, you cannot trust a politician because they will say one thing one day and they'll say another thing the next day. That's just the way the game works. So if we just take to the, you know, the, 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 the thought about something else coming out, similar event, but on a much bigger scale, is there anything based on what happened last week that makes you go back and look into and sit down with your research team and say, you know, how would we be prepared for something like this? Or do we need to to investigate um, doing things slightly differently, given that there might be much more divergence, much more risk, much many more black swans coming uh, in in, in the future years? Well, um, you're asking a very interesting and uh, very deep question, 
uh, has many ramifications. So let me allow me to sort of rephrase Absolutely. the question. Sure. When we think of risk events, um, there are two types of risk events that we try to um, envision. You have endogenous risk and you have exogenous risk. So uh, technically, um, events like the euro breaking up or central bank action, those most of the time should be endogenous events. And with endogenous event, um, I think we've reached a certain level of maturity in the capital markets. Uh, maybe I was lost a little bit on the SMB, <laughs> but where everybody tries to reduce the effect of possibly endogenous events. So if the euro is to break up, um, there'll be quite a bit of telegraphing for something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, no one has any interest in taking the market by surprise on something like that. So the news will come out slowly over time. Uh, trends will turn slowly over time and the portfolios will organically adjust their position uh, to that reality. Um, and theoretically, that should be a positive or a non-event, uh, depending or, or it could be a bad event, just depending on how fast it happens. Uh, the real issue, though, is exogenous event. Um, because by definition, you cannot model for an exogenous event. Now, looking at exogenous event, you also have to separate them between exogenous events where um, trading is permitted and exogenous events where trading is not permitted. Mm -hmm. So if it's an exogenous event where trading is permitted, meaning it didn't happen on a weekend and the markets didn't gap uh, 10%, 20% the minute the event happened, um, then the reaction is very different across different strategies. So that's an environment where our conquest micro strategy has done tremendously well. I mean, you know, we were up over 10% the day of the flash crash. Sure. Uh, where uh, for trend following strategies, it depends on the makeup of your trend following program. So something like our Conquest MFH strategy, the Managed Future Select, would actually do very well because uh, our uh, Conquest MFS program is extremely diversified across timeframes. So even if on a single day, we start seeing large movement in one direction or the other in the market, then our shorter term timeframe will kick in very quickly to uh, turn the position around, so to speak, and, and be on the right side. Now, also, it's worth mentioning that when an exogenous event happens, it's not uh, given that it's a bad event. It could be a very good event. Sure. Now, uh, one, and this is now you're sort of going a little bit into part of the reasoning that we used in our paper, improving why trend followers are not long volatility strategy. Um, now, uh, one of the examples that a lot of the trend followers um, like to use uh, that they are long volatility would be something like a September 11th, which is your foster child for an exogenous event. Now, when September 11, 2001 happened, it happened in an environment where uh, fixed income was already rallying and equities were already going down. So you had an exogenous event that pushed the market in the direction of the prevailing trend. Yeah. So trend followers ended up doing very well. If that event had happened a year or so earlier where the trends were the other way, 
it would have been uh, a very bad event for trend followers. So when you look at exogenous events vis-a-vis -vis trend following, it's really first it's the 50-50 whether you're on the right side or the wrong side of this exogenous event. Two is whether your systems are sufficiently sufficiently flexible from a time frame or stop out or whatever to factor in a day move uh, within the broader trend that you're doing. Uh, and uh, three, uh, and very importantly, whether you can trade or not. Uh, so if it's something that happens on a weekend and markets gap open, you know, uh, up or down 20% on Sunday night in Sydney, then really there is nothing anybody can do. And really that's just part of the risk of being in the markets in the first place. Mm. No, I mean, I, I agree with these things, uh, but I think it, it certainly leaves me with one thought um, that I think maybe investors should, uh, you know, bear in mind, and that is the value that true diversification really gives you. And I do know that there are many portfolios out there that are focused in certain sectors and, and, and clearly some people have to do it for liquidity reasons and maybe uh, some people do it because they have a special edge in those markets. But I certainly think that truly diversified, fully diversified CTA or global macro strategies um, is probably the only safe bet you have against these completely unexpected events um, which i don't know but it seems likely to me that they won't be announced uh, if, if it was a, like we saw in cyprus a few years ago where suddenly you wake up and you have 10 percent less in your in your current account when big things change usually they come as a surprise and i think we've seen a few of them but i i i, I but you know I, you, you, the point though that you brought up earlier in your question is about correlation is also a very important one yeah. um, because uh, and this is an area that we've done a lot of work on um, which is uh, correlation of various asset classes and various strategies yeah and uh, correlation is one of those uh, statistics that sort of people love to hate, um, <laughs> basically that it's very unreliable and so on. But what we found is that correlation um, is, uh, is people use correlation the wrong way in the sense that they look at correlation of strategies or assets across many different regimes that are both risk seeking and risk averse. Sure. Uh, and correlation amongst asset classes and therefore among strategies that trade those asset classes are very different in risk-seeking periods than they are in risk-averse periods. So when you're looking at correlation across a data series of a 10, whatever, 10 years or so that has so many of these in and, regimes in and out, risk-seeking, risk-aversion and so on, of course you're going to get something that is unreliable because you're, 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 it's sort of garbage in, garbage out. However, if you correct for this and look at correlations in risk-seeking periods versus correlation risk-averse periods, you see that correlation is actually a very stable measure. Now, uh, what happens is that risk assets um, exhibit a much lower correlation in um, risk-seeking periods uh, where you know, an investment in uh, fixed income or a currency carry strategy or equities uh, is much more sort of governed by the alphas of those markets than the beta of the overall market. However, um, when you look at a lot of what um, active managers do, 
to a large extent, you can sum up a lot of you know um, hedge fund strategies as kind of buying the um, risky asset and selling the less risky asset. Now there could be skill in buying the risky asset. There could be do it on a more sort of you know systematic way or whatever. But generally, that's what you're doing. Now. Uh, when you apply this strategy across converts, across long short equity, across fixed income, across so in risk seeking periods, these strategies are all behaving differently. But all these strategies have one thing in common that is essential for them to, to exist, which is liquidity. Right. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's you can't really be long the risky asset and short less risky asset in a market where liquidity is zero. Uh, now, so what happens in risk aversion is that the first victim in risk aversion is liquidity. And uh, when liquidity gets hit, when markets go into risk averse mode, that's when you start seeing the downside correlation of all these strategies go to one, where all of them essentially start losing money at the same time. So uh, when you're looking at, you know, at, at investment and looking at portfolios, uh, you also have to be wary that what looks like a diversified portfolio in risk-seeking periods might not necessarily be a diversified portfolio in risk-averse periods. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very cool. Very good point. Very important point. Um, I want to end it there because it's a short uh, episode today, Mark, but I do want to give you the opportunity. I know we've been actually quite far around in our conversation, um, but if there's anything you want to finish up with, anything you feel you just want to mention it could be um, you know the highlight for you of 2014 or something that you just feel you want to to uh, to leave uh, the listeners thinking about as we go into 2015 I certainly want to give you that opportunity as well so I don't know if you have anything in mind you want to bring up before we we wrap up today's conversation sure. um, first I would like to thank the listeners of indulging me uh, one more time and uh, talking about the markets uh, two, um, just an observation, you know, I, I tend to be uh, a bit of a cynic when it comes to CTA investments in the sense that I think a lot of people over the years have lost a lot of unnecessary money investing in CTAs sure. because um, what they ultimately end up doing is uh, buying highs and selling lows. Sure. Uh, I would like to close by saying that CTA strategies and trading strategies, like all other strategies, are very cyclical. Uh, where they are different from other strategies is that their returns tend to be very bunched over a shorter period of time. So you go through a period where they do extremely well, and that period could be 12, 18 months, two years, whatever. And then they go through two, three years of uh, just flat to not interesting performance. The time to be looking at investing in CTA strategies is before they've hit their high watermark. It's times when, you know, sort of where we are now, where it looks like we've already bought them up, they're coming up, but they really haven't reached their full momentum. So um, I would encourage your listeners to um, look at these investments uh, and uh, hopefully make it part of their portfolio, because I do think they're going to do very well in the next uh, couple of years. Well, on that positive note, Mark, let's uh, let's finish up for today. And of course, uh, the listeners who want to 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 hear much more of of, of you, uh, there is of course our previous conversation, which is much more detailed. So I encourage people to listen to that as well. But I do want to thank you once again for being on the podcast and sharing your insights and your views. 
and congratulate you on on a solid year over a range of your strategies and of course wish you and your firm all the very best for the coming year and uh, i look forward to catching up later on in 2015. thank you very much niels i appreciate it you're very welcome take care Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.